We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. And this is Novel Tropes number two. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. And in case you missed our last episode, Novel Tropes is all about exactly what it says tropes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So remind our audience again what tropes are. Let me put you on the spot. Okay. Um, all right. So tropes are recurring images, motifs patterns yeah. um, things that you find over and over again basically in in well in this case in fiction but also in movies and tv shows and other forms of fiction yeah so we're not just going to be completely limited to fiction novels but um that will be our main focus again so last mm. episode we talked about commitment issues um a very common recurring trope particularly in romance stories and we also spent a lot of time talking about Bridgerton so if you like to talk about Bridgerton make sure to check that one out yeah and today we want to talk about tropes around violence and mental health issues. So we will be talking about common tropes around mental illness and violence, uh, as well as some of the actual research and the facts behind the real life link between mental illness and violence. We'll also be talking with Anna Ross, who is a PhD candidate from the University of Melbourne. So stay tuned towards the end of the episode for an interview with her. So we had a talk about Anna's PhD studies, which is all around mental health issues, violence and media coverage, specifically about developing guidelines about how to report on this relationship in a more accurate and sensitive way. So although her work is in nonfiction media, so news media, we think it's pretty relevant to fiction writers as well. Before we get started on our discussion, keep in mind that we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. We are also talking as mental health professionals and book lovers rather than from lived experience. And also, we'll just flag that the interview has been edited for length and clarity. And a couple of quick content notes before we get started. So today we'll be talking about topics such as specific mental health issues like um, schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar disorder, among others, uh, violence and aggression, crime, uh, stereotypes and stigma and discrimination. All right. With that in mind, let's get started with our discussion. Okay, so let's start with talking about what are some common tropes about mental health and violence. Okay, so uh, this trope really relates to the idea that people with mental health issues are violent individuals in some way. And this is seen particularly in the media around people who have uh, specific diagnoses such as schizophrenia, personality disorder such as antisocial and borderline personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, bipolar disorder, and psychosis. Or as well, if you start experiencing one of these, the trope sort of tells you that you are going to commit a violent act or become violent, even if you've never been a violent or aggressive person before. 
Mm. So according to TV Tropes, one of our favorite websites and resources for this discussion, (laughs) this trope is often used to make a character seem frightening since um, psychosis and other complex mental health issues are often used as an explanation for why a character might be acting in an unpredictable or unreasonable way or just a, a bizarre kind of way. And sometimes it's left just at the explanation that a person is violent because they have a mental illness and often an unspecified mental illness too. People love to sort of present this relationship in very uh, broad and sometimes vague terms as well. Yeah. It's like, it's like they've experienced psychosis, therefore they are violent. They are suddenly murdering people. <laughs> yeah, like it's a direct link in some yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah where we have a few issues as we'll cover down mm-hmm. the track. Mm-hmm. So lots of examples. What are some of the examples of this trope that we found? Well, usually the examples are around villains of the story. So Norman Bates in Psycho is probably a really famous one. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's right there in the title. Isn't yeah, it? Psycho. <laughs> yeah. James McAvoy's character in Split has a dissociative identity disorder. Although 20 out of uh, his character's 23 alters are said to be harmless, the plot of the movie focuses on the three personalities that are dangerous to other people. So he has another 20 that yep. aren't, but of course the, the story zeroes in on the ones that are. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure, and this is just by like looking at Wikipedia and stuff, but I'm pretty sure those mm. three personalities merge into like one evil ultra ultra sort of thing like oh boy okay yeah. i haven't seen that and i don't really have much of a desire to, to no. be honest. yeah um anyway dissociative identity disorder is also linked with violence in fight club and if you haven't you can check out our review episode for fight club for more of our rant about this <laughs> Um, another classic example is Mr. Rochester's wife in Jane Eyre. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah I forgot about, um, how did I forget about that plot line? That is such an important <laughs> plot line in Jane Eyre. It's been a long time since I've read it, to be fair. Yeah, and I think that's actually spun like, is it a subtrope of like women, mad women in the attic sort of thing? Mm. Um, anyway. Mr. Rochester's wife is implied to have an unspecified mental illness that leads to her being kept in the attic. And she frequently tried to kill Mr. Rochester throughout the story. Yeah, look, they didn't exactly have great mental health systems back when (laughs) the Bronte sisters were writing these novels, but Hmm. not the best way to handle it, Mr. Rochester. (laughs) Yeah, so... Anyway, as you could probably tell from our little list there, this trope tends to appear in the horror, thriller, crime genre, but not definitely not limited to just that. In recent times, there have been more and more conversations challenging this trope, but it is an ongoing process. Um, I tried to think of examples where this trope has been avoided. The Surprising Power of a Good Dumpling is one where we had a character with psychosis and complex mental health issues who never really resorted to violence. Another example that I've read recently is How It Feels to Float by Helena Fox, Mm -hmm. a character who experiences dissociation and 
an episode of psychosis, although it's not um, directly labelled what she's going through, but there's um, you know no no violence present that she experiences. Also thinking about some books I've read with characters with bipolar disorder who aren't violent as well. So mm-hmm. um, even though bipolar isn't, you know, as we said above, is a diagnosis often linked to violence. Um, so you know, a book like Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell has a character with bipolar, All the Bright Places as well, One of Us is Lying. All of those books have uh, minor characters who have bipolar disorder who aren't are presented as having quite complicated circumstances, but no violent incidences that I can recall happened as a result of them experiencing mania throughout the story. Yeah, though we have other issues with one of us is lying, but that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's not go too far into that as well. (laughs) All right, well, what does the research actually say? Yeah, so this was where I put my academic hat on and tried to have a look at what some of the literature actually says about Mm. the relationship between mental health issues and violence. And, you know, if your eyes, ears already glazing over, don't worry, I'm I'm just going to keep to the main points. But if you do want to learn more, we'll link to the main articles that I've referenced in our blog post that accompanies Mm. the episode. So um, in terms of the real life link. Um, There was a recent review in a very prominent journal called Lancet Psychiatry. So a systematic review where researchers essentially try to find every single article within a specific time frame um, that links links or presents um, a certain type of data. And as someone who's done systematic reviews before, there's a lot of work that goes into (laughs) these. So I just want to credit the authors for this particular um, systematic review. So this review found that Violent crime is more common among people who have diagnosed psychiatric disorders compared to those without, but still most studies find that fewer than 5% of people with mental illnesses are violent. Um, This percentage increases slightly for some disorders, but is still generally under 10% depending on the study. And the authors really highlighted that there are often other factors at play like difficulties with substance use, history of criminal activity, Mm. and various other things that might underline why a person who happens to experience um, a mental illness might act in a violent way. Other studies have found that only about 4% of violent crime is associated with severe mental illness. So if we flip that around, that means that 96% of violent acts are carried out by people who don't have a diagnosed uh, severe mental illness. And meanwhile, a really important statistic is that people who have mental illnesses are much more likely to be victims of crime than they are to be perpetrators. So one review we found um, from 2014 found that up to 92% of people with severe mental illnesses have been uh, victims or survivors of violent crime. And this ranged a lot based on the different studies within the review, um, but those that used a, a smaller time frame, um, so not necessarily lifetime history of mm. uh, being a survivor of violence, but a more recent survivor, those studies still range between 7 and 56%. So it's still a really large proportion that have experienced violence within this time. So yeah. um, a common thing you might hear is that people are much more likely to be uh, victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators, and that seems to be pretty backed up by the research too. Mm. What we get though is that in the media people love linking violence to mental health issues and mental illnesses. 
Mm. So, you know, I found a review that summarized a bunch of different research in this, including content analyses where people count instances of certain events that occur in media. And some of the key messages from that was that, um, you know, gun violence is often linked to severe mental illness when it comes to um, news coverage, particularly in the US. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is often uh, associated with crime in law and order and similar TV shows. So there was a content analysis of law and order that found that 51% of characters with a diagnosed mental illness committed a violent act compared to only 18% of characters without. Mm -hmm. Another content analysis found that in primetime US TV, 37% of characters with a diagnosed mental illness were portrayed as violent criminals with an average of three violent crimes each. (laughs) Mm-hmm. characters with mental illnesses were 10 times more likely to commit a violent crime than characters without. Oh, wow. Awful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of an you know an easy thing for writers to rely on, like, oh, we need a heinous new act in yeah. our crime of the week TV show. What can be behind it this time? And then just look, at, look through yeah. the relevant diagnoses and find something that they haven't covered recently. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> And then we get the impact of this as well. So the research is pretty clear that um, when people see more negative reports and social media posts and coverage about mental illness and violence, they tend to experience an increase in stigmatizing attitudes themselves. Yeah. The positive is that the vice versa relationship exists too. So that when people see more positive coverage, stigmatizing mm-hmm. attitudes seem to reduce. Um, so I think that says something about what we maybe should be focusing on that you know neither of us are really experts in this area no definitely not so this was me um you know having a fairly quick look at the the research but I didn't want to um pretend that I was an expert in this (laughs) so we decided to talk to someone who has been dedicating a lot of time to researching this topic Anna Ross so let's insert our interview with Anna now and talk a little bit more about her PhD and her key findings and messages. Hi, this is Leah Stuhler, creator and host of YA Book Chat Podcast. If you love reading young adult books and chatting about them with your friends, then head on over to my podcast and take a listen. Each episode, my guest and I chat about a different YA book. We start spoiler free and then head into our spoiler section where we dive into the mysteries of each book and we do it with laughs and fun along the way. You can listen to YA Book Chat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and wherever you get your podcast. And now back to the show. Okay, so we are joined here tonight with Anna Ross. Anna, we are so excited to have a conversation with you and to learn more about your research and all the interesting things that you've been doing. I'm wondering if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having me, Elise and Priscilla. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight talking about a topic that's really um, interesting to me. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, um, where I'm doing my PhD with the Centre for Mental Health. My research is focusing on improving media portrayals, so focusing on um, news reporting um, of mental illness with an overall goal to reduce stigma. Cool. That sounds really, yeah, awesome. And uh, how far through your PhD are you? Um, I'm quite a way through, which is, it's an awesome place to be. Um, So I have about five months left my PhD to go. Um, So I say it's awesome because 
Um, I've I've finished my data collection. I've finished all my projects. I've got all my findings. Um, so I know I know what I wanted to find out, kind of thing. And now it's just a matter of sitting down and um, compiling it all, bringing it all together, and writing a thesis. I think I'm really curious about uh, what common stereotypes do you find in the media about people with mental health issues. Mm, that's a really good question. I think it's really important to acknowledge, firstly, that. We have seen um, an improvement in um, portrayals of people with mental illness in the news media. Um, so that's, you know, particularly we've seen an increase in more positive portrayals. Um, so this could be feature stories about people with lived experience of mental illness. And this could be maybe wonderful things that they're achieving, um, everyday successes, um, or even just the impact of the advocacy work as well. But outside of this, we do commonly see mental illness linked to violence and crime in a quite prominent way as well. So this can include, you know, like use of like stigmatizing language in headlines and, um, you know, really prominent linking headlines and opening lines and mental illness portrayed as, you know, the cause of violence and crime. Things like people with mental illness being dangerous, unpredictable, incapable, um, these kinds of um, stereotypes are still quite prominent. So, yeah, the, the stereotypes we're seeing are, you know, a long way off um, from what reality is. And that's why um, what I'm aiming to do in my research is to kind of balance things out. Um, so what we're seeing in the news media and what we're exposed to in our everyday lives is actually a more accurate reflection of reality. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess it's not about pretending that people who are experiencing mental health issues or mental illness never uh, perpetuate mm -hmm. crime or are, are never engaging in crime, but rather to get that more accurate, I suppose, and to ma make sure that it's portrayed in a responsible way, I imagine. Absolutely. No, that's that's 100% it. Unsurprisingly, reality is much more complicated than what the media would like us to believe. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, we all want to know when something happens and generally something that's quite bizarre happens, we all want to know why. And so it's common that, you know, we jump to the conclusion of mental illness, often, you know, often prematurely as well as being no psych assessments done to even determine if that was part of the cause. Um, but we also know that there's, you know, so many people who are living with psychosis and schizophrenia and, you know, some cases of bipolar disorder that also involve psychosis um, who are never violent, who, are, you know, who never hurt anyone, would, would never hurt anyone. Really important that um, we are, I guess, giving that context and, you know, fleshing things out properly. According to your research or the mm -hmm. general research as well, how do negative stereotypes about mental health issues affect the general public? We know that these um, these stereotypes, being exposed to these negative stereotypes through the news media, um, can have a cumulative effect. So, you know, we see mental illness prominently linked with violence, and over time, it really um, can influence our attitudes and even our behaviours. Um, so, it, it's quite a detrimental effect, really, leading to you know um, stigma and discrimination um, towards people with mental illness, and then this you know, in, in the bigger picture can then lead to reduced help seeking for mental health concerns. And all of this, as you can imagine, um, impacts quality of life too. Another thing that um, these negative stereotypes can influence is 
um, systemic discrimination, so people like um, landlords, employers and law enforcement as well. Yeah, it absolutely sounds like there's a huge flow-on effect and I think that really outlines the importance of um, you know, how much media representation can reflect but also influence our lives in general. It's not just, you know, oh, sticks and stones may break my bones but words may never hurt me. It's words may impact on the broader system that is perpetuating this discrimination. So, mm. yeah, I think um, it's, a, it's such an important area that you've been working in. You know, with, with mental illnesses such as psychosis and schizophrenia, that the ones that we most often see portrayed um, in the context of violence and crime is these are the illnesses that are more poorly understood as well. So um, this can sometimes mean that what we are exposed to can have bigger influence. So I want to hear a little bit more about your research specifically. So uh, one thing that I know that you've been up to is working hard to create some of the new guidelines about how she report on issues related to mental health, violence and crime in a more responsible way. So can you tell us a little bit more about these guidelines and some of the, um, the key messages that are in those? A big part of my PhD, and I think um, what my research is really focused on, the focal point of the PhD has been um, developing guidelines for portraying um, mental illness in the context of violence and crime in that, that responsible and balanced way. Um, and I think the I think the main crux of it all has been, um, and the main advice and the guidelines is about being, well, firstly, you know, being aware of the impact. Um, that the portrayals, news portrayals can have. Um, and it's not just about, I guess, a potential negative impact. Like we know that, yes, you know, that is an outcome, but we also know the opposite can happen as well. We know that news portrayals that are informative and accurate, um, and I, as I described earlier on, um, story, that portrayals that tell stories of lived experience, um, you know, people who are living with a mental illness and, and, you know, achievements and things that they're doing, wonderful things they're doing with their lives can actually have the opposite impact. It can challenge stigma. It challenges those those stereotypes we've been exposed to. Um, and it, I guess it creates that, um, a different narrative. And it's also important, I guess, you know, to consider that impact as well in in writing. As we've said before, so that might involve giving more contextual information. So, yes, we know there is a small link um, with untreated psychosis and violence, but we know there's a lot of people with untreated psychosis who aren't violent. So, you know, what has what else has been happening for this person to behave this way um, in this circumstance? So, you know, fleshing out those details to, to better explain that. So it's giving the readers, the audience, a better understanding of actually it's not just mental illness that causes violence. There's a lot of factors at play. It's quite complex. Describing things accurately as well. So um, if we're talking about an illness, making sure we know with the illness we're talking about um, and what the impact of the symptoms might be. I think the, the overarching message is without boring you with the details. Yeah, it makes a lot of logical sense, but I imagine that's not what happens in um, the media a lot of the times. Anna, can you, yeah, just in uh, layman's terms, I guess, tell us a little bit about how you were able to develop those recommendations, what the, the methodology was like before you got to the point of actually publishing the guidelines. Absolutely. We developed the guidelines with, I guess, the end product in mind. So we wanted to make sure that what we were doing you know, would result in the best practice guidance, um, but also it would be um, practical to uptake as well. 
our whole process, we have been um, quite collaborative. Um, we've been working with Mindframe, who are the um, Australian um, National Media Initiative for reporting on mental illness and suicide. We also found it really important to include our key stakeholders. We involve people with lived experience of severe mental illness, um, and for the purposes of our research, that included schizophrenia, psychosis, and bipolar disorder. Um, we had mental health professionals involved, and we also had media professionals involved as well. So to start off with, we conducted interviews with our key stakeholders, um, asking about, you know, what kind of changes would you like to see, um, and how, how can we make these happen? What are your ideas? And then from there, we conducted what's called a Delphi study. So we made some statements that um, based on each idea, it became a statement um, and our stakeholders rated the statement um, based on how important they think it would be to be included in the guidelines. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to flag that I saw that that had been published. Um, the Delphi study had been recently published. So congratulations. It's absolutely. great. Thank you. Thank you. So the guidelines are available on the Mindframe website um, for free of charge. So anyone can access those. Um, but yes, it's great that the, re the research behind it as well has also been published. This is an excellent guideline for people who work in the media, as well as the nonfiction side of media, so to speak. How do you think these guidelines might apply to fiction writers? I think it's the same overarching considerations that we have for media reporting can also apply to fictional writing as well. Stigmatizing portrayals can be really harmful um, but also knowing that, um, you know, positive portrayals, so those informative, accurate portrayals um, can have a positive impact. Um, and, again, important to avoid stereotyping um, and providing that contextual information, um, so giving more detail as to, you know, what's going on for somebody, what's influencing their behaviour, um, rather than, you know, solely linking bizarre behaviour to mental illness. Um, and I think another thing that um, might be helpful for fiction writers as well as knowing that um, if you are unsure about the potential impact, so it's a really good idea to ask someone who might be able to provide that advice to you. So someone who has an understanding um, or, you know, mental health expertise. And this is something we're also seeing more in, in fictional film portrayals where uh, screenwriters are consulting mental health um, experts to um, you know, have input into the script and say, well, you know, is this accurate? What might the impact of this be? Um, you know, what can we do differently to, to maybe have a, a better, more positive impact? So that's something that's really promising that's happening as well. Mindframe, the organisation I talked about earlier, um, do do a lot of work um, in training and providing support to media professionals. However, um, they do also um, support fictional writers as well. I, I just checked their website. I think it's mostly towards that, the screenwriting um, type style of writing, but I imagine, you know, that that support would also be there for anyone um, who is unsure about, you know, what the impact of their writing might be. So Mindframe are an awesome organisation to get in touch with. I have been seeing this movement towards using sensitivity readers for some writers where they ask people with uh, certain identities that they're portraying in their books or with lived experience of mental health, I believe as well, to read over their draft and have some input. So, yeah, so hopefully that's something that's becoming more mainstream. Absolutely. And I think too, I, I sorry, I said mental health experts, but yes, people with lived experience, absolutely experts 
um, through their own lived experience as well as other um, other you know ways that they're engaged in advocacy, all these sorts of things. So absolutely, ARO is such a valuable um, resource for for writing and getting feedback on that. Fantastic. We're against this. Um, this, I know this, this history or this tradition of portraying mental illness in the news and in in movies um, in a certain way. Um, and so now, you know, it, it takes a lot to undo um, those perceptions that people have formed and, and create new ones. So I think exactly right. The more positive stories that we can get out there and we can share, absolutely the better. And I'm hoping that with resources such as these these guidelines and other um, other sort of movement towards that this being a, a higher standard, a higher set of expectations for media portrayals, that 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 trend will hopefully continue. Absolutely, and you too, I know, are the experts in in these um, these fictional portrayals, but also um, it sounds like some also like biographical portrayals as well, and that's something that I know that. I need to to immerse myself in more. So um, it sounds like you've got some great recommendations for me too. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. All right. Well, um, I think we might wrap up our interview portion of today. So Anna, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciated it. Really great discussion and looking forward to digging into those guidelines and learning a little bit more about what you've been doing. Yeah, you're doing important work from the sounds of it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. back <laughs> that was a fun interview I feel like I learned a lot yeah really interesting interview with Anna there we're really grateful that she was able to join us um mm. and it sounds like such interesting work she's doing as well yeah absolutely based on the stats that you mentioned alone I think it's important to try and turn around the conversations that are happening in the media yeah a hundred percent and um, you know, it sounds like there are some some guidelines and some advice that's out there. Um, but you know, let's let's have a chat about like what we would like to see personally in terms of fiction writing um, yep. before we present um, a, a few more resources for people to consider. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I personally would just like to see less of this trope. Period. Yes. Yes. Sure. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get rid of it anytime soon, but I think mm-hmm. um, it's definitely one that I would just love to see really decrease in how often we we see this in media. Yeah, I think you know just less of that causation, like very simplistic causation between mental health and violence. That's just lazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and like. W- We've already mentioned this a few times, but it really perpetuates the stigma. And as a result, it perpetuates discrimination against people who experience complex mental health issues. And it puts people off getting help and being open about their experiences. And the cycle continues. Yeah. And I think um, writers and through good representation have such an opportunity to break that cycle, at least contribute towards breaking that cycle. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Um, I also want to see less of like the stigmatizing language that tends to come around this too. So, um, Mm. 
you know, ableist and offensive terms, often outdated terms. And, you know, I'm going to mention some of these yeah. now, but obviously we don't advocate for the, yeah. for people to, to use these terms, but terms like schizo, lunatic, crazy, oh, there's so many of them, but those are some yeah. of the ones that come to mind. And then there's also incorrect terms that people use. So, for example, people often mix up psychopathic and psychotic. Um, yeah. And they're not interchangeable terms. So psychopathic refers to psychopathy, which is a, a personality trait, mm. um, arguably a, a personality disorder, depending on the literature that you're looking yeah. at, <laughs> whereas psychotic means experiencing psychosis, an episode of psychosis, and they're very different things um, mm. and they just get used as the same thing, which is not ideal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, I think it would also be important to see empathetic portrayals of people with complex mental health issues and them being shown not to be inherently violent. Although we've advocated for this trope to just not really happen as much <laughs> as it has been. Yeah. I suppose if you are going to have a character who is violent and, you know, I don't think that the crime and thriller genres are going away anytime no. soon. And you know, I, I like reading them too, so that's yeah. okay. But I, if, if you are going to have a villain or a perpetrator just consider, first of all, is it necessary to slap a diagnosis on that person? And would that diagnosis actually explain that character's behavior? Absolutely. In line with what Anna said, that if you want to include a diagnosis, please just thoroughly research what this actually looks like and don't portray it as a simple link between mental illness and violence. Think about other factors that might contribute to violence, such as misogyny, radicalization, poverty, lack of access to treatments, normalization of violence, and also include other balanced representations of people with mental health issues. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, it's, it's tokenistic to only include one character with mental health issues, mm. especially considering the stats, um, you know, say that something like, at least in Australia, um, I think in every, any given year, one in five Australians will experience a mental health issue. Mm. Um, and we def definitely don't have one in five characters in book and yeah. TV <laughs> and film experiencing um, clear mental health issues. So, mm. and it's, it's quite likely more than that too. Um, that statistic is probably a bit outdated now, but that's the one that springs to mind. Yeah. Um, so yeah, have, have more characters, have, um, you know, mm. you, not everyone needs a diagnosis, but people go through a lot of things and yeah. people go through a lot of trauma and don't become violent necessarily as a result of that. Yeah, as most of us know from the year that was 2020. Yeah, God. <laughs> we all had trauma and we didn't go out and kill people. Yes, and I think most of us are still reeling from the impacts of that, even if you are mm. in a situation where, um, you know, the pandemic is no longer affecting you directly. It's yeah. it's going to have lingering effects um, and you never know mm. what someone else is going through unless you talk to them either. Yeah, absolutely. Well... On that note, that's the end of our discussion. Now we will quickly mention what is going up on the blog post on our website to link in with this episode. Some of the resources that we will link to include information about this trope from TV Tropes, information about media reporting, including an article written by Anna Ross, and then guidelines from Mindframe that Anna mentioned in our interviews. We'll include some more explanation about sensitivity readers in fiction writing. 
And I'll also link to some of the academic articles that I mentioned, including those systematic reviews. Um, We'll also make sure to include Anna's uh, social media handles if you want to find out more about her research. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'll just mention briefly, you can find Anna Ross through at Anna underscore Ross underscore on Twitter. And that wraps us up for Novel Tropes episode two. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Please remember to subscribe and follow us to keep up to date with us and to know when our new episodes are posted. Next episode should go up in May, so watch this space. And for an episode summary and all the resources we've mentioned this episode, check out novelfeelings.com. We also post information about getting support for you or someone you care about. If you like, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to ask us a question or to chat, you can send us a message via our website or social media. So we are on Instagram, Twitter and Goodreads at novel underscore feelings. You can also find me on Bookstagram at pave with books with an extra S. And your Bookstagram has recently had a makeover, hasn't it? That's right. And it's no longer abandoned. So um, yeah, I'm much happier with the way it looks at the moment. So yeah, looking beautiful and posting much more regularly. Which is yes, nice. that's right. <laughs> so yeah, if you want to check out that account, I will be present (laughs) Um, yeah so thank you for joining us tonight thanks everybody we'll see you next time